Religious freedom in China continues to erode as former Hong Kong Bishop Cardinal Joseph Zinn is set to go on trial. Director of the Center for Religious Freedom, Nina Shea, and member of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Frank Wolf, are here with analysis. Later, a change in policy toward transgender students in Virginia's public schools is causing controversy. Secretary of Education for the state of Virginia, Amy Gadera, is here to comment. Finally, sacred music composed specifically for the Catholic Mass is gaining renewed attention. Composer Frank LaRocca and Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni of San Francisco tell us why. And I have a new big reveal the world over. Begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening, but first, some news. One week before their ad limina visits to Rome, some bishops in Belgium published a new document on the pastoral care of Catholics who identify as LGBT. It includes a text allowing for a ritual blessing of same-sex couples. The document signed by the Flemish bishops states, quote, homosexual couples who choose to live in lasting and faithful union with a partner deserve appreciation and support. This relationship, although not a church marriage, can also be a source of peace and shared happiness for those involved, end quote. The official website of the French-speaking Catholic Church in Belgium states that the new document applies only to Belgium's Flanders region. It noted that the French-speaking Diocese of Liege published a similar brochure on accompanying homosexual persons, which was presented to Pope Francis in July. Last week, after bishops blocked a vote demanding changes to the church's teaching on sexuality at the German Synodal Way, organizers have vowed to take their objections to Rome. One of two presidents of the Synodal Way, Bishop Georg Betzing, expressed his, quote, personal disappointment that a minority of bishops prevented the document from being officially adopted. The document, titled Living in Successful Relationships, calls for the relaxation of traditional church teaching on homosexuality, bisexuality, gender identity, and masturbation. While nearly 83 percent of the Synodal Assembly in Frankfurt voted in favor of adopting the text, only about 61 percent of the bishops did, falling just short of the two-thirds majority required for adoption. Be sure to catch The World Over on Thursday, October 6th, when I'll be speaking to Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, former head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, about all of this and much more. While the world's attention has been glued to the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, the former bishop of Hong Kong, Cardinal Joseph Zen, was to stand trial in China for, quote, conspiracy to collude with foreign forces. That trial has been further delayed after the presiding judge apparently contracted COVID. Now 90-year-old Cardinal Zen faces an uncertain future. Joining me with an update on his situation and what this delay might mean 
is director of the Center for Religious Freedom at the Hudson Institute, Nina Shea, and former U.S. Congressman from Virginia, now Commissioner of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Frank Wolf. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Commissioner Wolf, Cardinal Zen was charged under this sweeping security law imposed by Beijing in 2020. Zen and five others were arrested in May. The charges could carry heavy fines and significant jail time, and the trial could still begin next week. What do you make of the original charge? And is the delay legitimate or perhaps a tactic by the CCP? Well, with the Chinese government, you never know. The charges against Cardinal Zen, who, as you know, Raymond, is 90 years old and has been the leading Catholic spokesman in Hong Kong, quite frankly, maybe even in all of China, it would be devastating because a, a sentence, a prison sentence for someone 90 years old could be basically a death sentence. I don't know what the delay means. They said originally it was because of COVID for the judge. We have, we have asked, uh, and, and I know Nina has also asked, that the State Department have an American, somebody, American staff person from the American consulate to be there, one, to show that America cares deeply about this, secondly, to be an encouragement mm. to Cardinal Zen. But the delay could be just kind of another Chinese tactic. We just don't know. Nina, uh, we have no new firm date for this trial. What do you think that delay means for Cardinal Zen? I mean, is this an advantage to him, or are the Chinese manipulating the situation to their own advantage? What are you hearing? Well, Raymond, I think we have to look at this from the context, a broader context, not even just about Cardinal Zen, not even about Hong Kong, but about the uh, Sino-Vatican agreement, which is up for renewal right. in the coming weeks. And the Vatican has been really acting quite desperate to see it renewed. The Chinese, not so much. It is an example of diplomatic malpractice, frankly, from the, the point of view of the, uh, f you know, looking at the Vatican's actions. Um, it, the terms, in, in any type of agreement like this, you, it depends on how the terms are drafted and who enforces them. And, of course, in this case, it's the terms are secret. We don't know. We know it's about the appointment of bishops, and there is no enforcement. And um, the Vatican really has gotten a raw deal from, from what we've seen so far. I know the Holy Father has said it's moving well, but it's not ideal. I think that's a, a bit of an understatement. Um, there are, by my count, six bishops on the mainland who have either disappeared or in detention or have been banished from their ministry. Um, and, and, and so, um, plus, Cardinal uh, Zen, the highest-ranking uh, senior, most senior mm -hmm. hierarchy bishop in, in the China, um, on facing trial now. Um, this is really reminiscent of the time when Cardinal Kung was put on trial. Uh, some 70 years right. ago, which ruptured the diplomatic relations between Vatican and China and Beijing. So, um, it, it, you know, and plus there's the Uyghur genocide that's unfolded and been identified uh, in the last couple of years since this agreement was first signed. Um, you know, the, the, the Vatican has been working on an agreement for 25 years. And um, it decided to go forward with this uh, really secret, and it looks like a very bad agreement, um, at a very time when President Xi is cracking down across the board on human rights in Hong Kong, on free speech, mm. political rights in Hong Kong, also absorbing Hong Kong, swallowing it up, um, threatening Taiwan, uh, committing genocide against the Uyghurs. 
and, and banning all children from any exposure to religion whatsoever inside China. So it's right. a, 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 a terrible time to go forward with any kind of agreement. I think that the Vatican has made a mistake. Um, it should be shoring up the underground instead. Uh, Commissioner Wolf, uh, I want your thoughts both as in your previous uh, incarnation as a politician and now as, as head of the International Religious Freedom uh, Commission. A week ago, the Pope asked to meet with President Xi in Kazakhstan, and he was totally rebuffed. Xi had no time for him. What do you think that means, and how do you interpret that vis-a-vis -vis this Sino-Vatican agreement? Well, it's a rebuffment of the of, of the Pope, rebuffment of the Catholic Church, rebuffment of of Christianity. The very thought that the Pope was denied the meeting was was shocking. That's why we want a representative of the United States government to be there to trial. Also, quite frankly, mm -hmm. Raymond, the Church in the West should be speaking out. Catholic bishops should be speaking I agree. out. Christ should be speaking out. Protestant pastors should be speaking out. If you care about religious freedom. You should be speaking out. Cardinal Zen, quite frankly, is a symbol for Christianity right now in China. And if this trial goes forward and he is convicted, a prison sentence could bring about his death. So I think this is very, very important. I think what Nina said is actually there are five, maybe six Catholic bishops. You remember Congressman Chris Smith took Holy Communion from Bishop yes. Sue. He was never seen again, and yet he was alive for a long period of time, we were, we were told. No, no, it's it's outrageous. Uh, both the silence of the church in America, and but firstly, the the church in the Vatican. And Nina, I want your take on this. Uh, you know, the Pope did issue some words uh, regarding China and Cardinal Zen on his way back from Kazakhstan after he was, you know, denied a meeting with Xi. He was asked by a reporter from Crux if he thought Zen's trial is a violation of religious freedom. I want to put the quote up. To understand China, Pope Francis said, takes a century, and we do not live for a century. The Chinese mentality is a rich mentality, and when it gets a bit sick, it loses its richness. It is capable of making mistakes. To understand, we have chosen the path of dialogue, open to dialogue. <laughs> to characterize China as anti-democratic, I don't feel like it because it is such a complex country with its own rhythms. Yes, it's true that there are things that seem to us not to be democratic. That is true. Cardinal Zen, elderly, will go on trial in a few days, I believe. He says what he feels. One sees that there are limitations there. Nina, your reaction to yeah. those words and the Pope's understanding of Cardinal Zen and the, and the Chinese government. Yes, Raymond. It's really um, it's it's disappointing uh, to say the least. It's not pastoral. Uh, the whole justification of the Vatican for this agreement, and that's why the Pope is is doing this. He's afraid to criticize Beijing because he'll he's afraid that they'll walk away from the agreement, which they've gotten virtually nothing out of. Um, but. Uh, you know, they, they said that uh, they would move the study center from Hong Kong, which was a very important uh, center for study and learning of Christianity for Catholics in, mm -hmm. in China. All over China would come and do that. They would move it to Beijing. And now Beijing has not responded at all, but they're, they're offering um, concession after concession, has refused to criticize any arrest of any of the bishops or detention or disappearance. 
And um, they secretly, though, they quietly, uh, anonymously, the Vatican official said um, that they're offering a hand, but every time they offer a hand to China, uh, they end up with a bloody blade of the knife, that they have a bloody hand. Mm. Um, so that they, they are, it's a raw deal, um, but they're, the price of that deal, not only uh, in terms of not filling about a third of the 90 uh, Episcopal seats that are right. empty, um, and getting only six uh, appointments in the four years since the deal has been signed, um, two of which were, it looks like, observers say that it looks like it took the Vatican and the Pope by surprise. It was outside the regular process. So uh, they've gotten uh, six bishops um, in four years out of 30 that they need. And uh, two of them may not even be their picks at all, and the Pope may, you know, mm. approved after their fact. Um, this is a raw deal, well, and 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 the, the price of it is not only in the empty Episcopal seats, which is important, and that is the life of the church, but um, it, it's the silence of and and the um, well, but Nina, holding back you've on moral hit on authority. It. I, I don't I don't mean to cut you off, but you've hit on it. You just said this entire way that these bishops were were appointed took the papacy and uh, the Pope and the Vatican by surprise. Well, they shouldn't have been surprised. Commissioner uh, Wolf, Cardinal Zen tried repeatedly to the yeah. Pope's face and through emissaries to warn him, this is what would happen if you sold out the church in China. Those are Zen's words, not mine. And he said it would destroy the church because you're handing over the appointment of bishops and Episcopal apostolic trust to the com Chinese communist government. Your thoughts, uh, Commissioner Wolf, on the Vatican now silent as not only home church leaders, but their own cardinals are being dragged into prison and subjected to this kind of kangaroo court. Well, Raymond, they have to speak out because, as Nina said, uh, there's genocide against the Uyghurs. There's genocidal activity against the Buddhists uh, in, in, in Tibet. The following Ganga's organ, organ harvesting, mm -hmm. where I won't get into, they're taking people's organs and, right. and selling there are 100 Protestant pastors in jail. You need to speak out. They will not understand if you don't speak out. You have to be bold. I mean, Ronald Reagan taught us this. You need to speak out over and over and over. And by speaking out, that's what got Sharansky out. That's what got Solzhenitsyn out. You need to speak out. Mm. Cardinal Zen is a hero. He represents the Christian faith there. He's a man. He goes into prisons and he ministers to prisons. I've met him when he's come here in the United States. He's a humble man. We need to speak out for him. The Congress should be speaking out. The administration should be speaking out. The church should be speaking out. Everyone should be speaking out and praying for him because this is very, very important. Yeah. A jail sentence to a nine-year-old man can literally be a death sentence. We all need to speak out. Yeah. Uh, have you heard, and I'll throw this to both of you, has the Biden administration offered anything diplomatically to send someone over? Uh, have they responded favorably, uh, Commissioner Wolf, to your idea that a representative well, should go and be present to observe this trial? Well, yeah. 
I don't know, and we'll find out. The trial could begin. We 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 asked we asked you, sir, officially asked the State Department to to send Nina. God bless her. Has been very good. Nina has had a number of other people. Lord Alton from Britain has spoken out. Nina has contacted different people. She can comment on that, but. So they have really been contacted from many sources. We pray that they will send. Mm -hmm. To have somebody in the trial room would send a message that America cares. We care about religious freedom, but also it would be an encouragement to Colonel Zinn. Yeah. Nina, you want to jump in on that? And, and I also want you to speak specifically to the Pope's uh, critique, or lack thereof, where he, he wasn't sure whether China is anti-democratic. How could anyone come away with that perception? Yeah, he, he is really—the Pope is, seems to be um, covering up even an apologist at this point. I don't know if he's confused about that it's, um, you know, the Latin American kind of liberation theology going on in China, but it's very, very different. It's more Stalinist. It's more Maoist. Um, it, it, she wants to—the president of China wants to eradicate religion, all religions. As Commissioner mm -hmm. Wolf said, you know, it's the Uyghurs, it's the Tibetans, it's the Falun Gong, it's also the Christians. And they want to eliminate yep. them. They don't want to recognize the pope. The last thing they want is Pope Francis in Beijing, which the Vatican keeps asking for, including the pope in Kazakhstan, said it uh, just last week, I'm willing to go, I'm ready to go. They're not going to let him in. They've snubbed him in Kazakhstan. They've snubbed him in Rome um, right after they renewed it the last time two years ago. Uh, they put out an ordinate order saying that, the, 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 you know, here's how you appoint Catholic bishops uh, a month after this was agreement was renewed the last time. Um, and uh, it, it, the ordinance had no, uh, no mention of the pope, a papal role. There was a, a Wuhan Catholic conference uh, in August, the first one since the agreement signed of Catholic leaders. Again, the, the, the top uh, uh, government-approved bishops made no mention of the pope or the agreement. It's dead letter. And the pope is really forfeiting some moral authority by uh, covering up and by refusing to say what is happening no. to Catholics, to Christians, to other religions, including the Uyghurs. There needs to be a change in policy in the Vatican. This is, um, it, they've had their focus, single focus, on this agreement and dialogue. It's not working. The church is no, being destroyed. Uh, I'll say. Yeah, church is being imprisoned, destroyed, and snuffed out. And, and, I mean, to allow the Gospels to be perverted and have Xi and Mao and communist thought yeah. woven into the official scriptures read in these churches, that, that, that's outrageous. I mean, forget offensive policies. It's an offense before God. Commissioner Wolf, before we run out of time, uh, the, the communist uh, Chinese government here seems completely oblivious to any obligations in this supposed pact with the Vatican. Um, and, and you see all of these clerics walking on eggshells. And as you said earlier, you, you were asking for bishops to speak out around the world. They're taking their lead from Rome, and Rome has decided to be silent on this. Uh, is this kind of diplomacy, this walking on eggshells as the church bleeds out, is this effective in any way or a path to dialogue? No, it, 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 it is not effective. What is effective was when Pope John Paul and Ronald Reagan 
and Margaret Thatcher spoke out over and over. Just talk to Sharansky. He's, when, when Sharansky knew that people were speaking out for him, his life got better in the prison and he got out. Solzhenitsyn, talk to Sol mm. speaking out, speaking out boldly in a, in, a, in a clear way, in a kind way, but speaking out over right. and over and over is an encouragement to the, the people in, in, in the parishioners in the church. But no, quietness does not get you there. You need to be, you need to be like the combination of Pope John Paul and President Ronald Reagan. That's what you need to be, particularly when you're up against people in China. Commissioner Wolf has made a very important um, point about the Ostpolitik of the Vatican, too. In, in, uh, it was John Paul, too, who, who changed the policy and started to speak out. But because before that, um, the, the two prior popes had this Ostpolitik, a, a, a diplomacy with the um, Soviet bloc, and it compromised the church. Uh, George Weigel, whom you've had on the show, he, he has uh, documented how this has compromised uh, the, even Vatican II, um, where the Hungarian uh, Vatican delegation was infiltrated by KGB agents with, with numbers. Uh, so, uh, hmm. you know, this is uh, going back to that failed policy, and it's, um, it's a mistake. It, and and, and yeah. Commissioner Wolf made another important point, which is that Cardinal Zen is the symbol of Christianity in China uh, for the Chinese and for the world. He is the one face that mm -hmm. everyone recognizes for Christians in China and maybe for all dissidents in China, for, for that matter. And I will take um, uh, Commissioner Wolf's advice and, and urge mm -hmm. everybody to keep Cardinal Zen all the suffering church in China in your prayers, our friend uh, Jimmy Lai and so many others who've been caught up in this uh, maniacal ideological purge of, of faith and faithful people and those who love democracy in any form. Uh, Commissioner Frank Wolf, Nina Shea, thank you both for your thank advocacy you and your clarity tonight. Thank you, Raymond. And on to slightly happier news, I am thrilled to share with you the cover reveal of my new book that will premiere next year in March. It's called The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison. It is the first book in my new Turnabout Tales series from Zonder Kids, Harper Collins. Now, this first book contains the largely hidden Turnabout Tale of how crisis and a mother's love turn Thomas Alva Edison into the world's greatest inventor. You and your family are going to love this series, exploring the origins of great lives at hinge moments. The Unexpected Light of Thomas Alva Edison premieres March 21st, 2023. It's the first turnabout tale. Challenges faced, paths altered, history changed. We'll talk about it more in the days ahead. On Friday, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin announced updated policies concerning transgender school mandates put in place by his predecessor. Those mandates permitted schools to withhold a student's gender transition from parents for privacy reasons. Joining us to discuss the change and the future of this transgender debate in schools is the Secretary of Education of Virginia, Amy Cadera. Thank you so much for being here, Ms. Secretary. Uh, your department released a new policy on Friday that states that Virginia's Department of Education, quote, fully acknowledges the rights of parents to exercise their fundamental rights granted by the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution to direct the care, upbringing, and education of their children. Why has Virginia's Department of Education issued this new model of policies for schools? And what does the change 
or what does it change rather from the previous administration? So the bottom line is parents matter. Um, by, as you said, this is in statute. It's ensconced not only in the U.S. Constitution, but in, in the law of Virginia, uh, that parents have rights to make decisions about their child's well-being, their upbringing, and their health. And the former policy that was put in place in 2021 by, the, uh, by Governor Northam's administration um, was uh, not aligned with those laws and statutes and did not recognize the vital role that parents play in students' lives. Uh, and by mm -hmm. law, there was a statute that was put into place in 2020 that mandated that the Department of Education put forth these policies. The first round of these policies was last year with Governor Northam. And these policies not only didn't recognize parents' rights, it, they, they went out of their way to say that teachers and schools should keep information from parents. Uh, and basically it went against that spirit of the law of parents being informed and engaged in their parents' information. And so as a result, the young right. administration made decisions that we were going to replace that policy. And to be blunt, this policy just wasn't working. We know that only 13 yeah. of our 132 school divisions had actually put, adopted this policy or a policy like it because it just wasn't tenable and it was out of step uh, with just common sense and what the values of these school divisions are. Uh, and also it was confusing and was disruptive to schools. And so we tried to amend all of that and to address mm -hmm. those concerns. Yeah, and, and the Northam administration, their policy basically said that uh, regardless of gender identity, uh, kids had to be acknowledged by their pronouns or their chosen names. Uh, and those guidelines came after you mentioned the legislature passed a law in 2020 uh, that demanded that the, the, the your state's Department of Education develop model policies, a template for schools to follow. I want to read a little bit from the Northam policies. It said... Uh, protection of student privacy and the confidentiality of sensitive information was uh, paramount. How is it possible that a teacher or a school would be allowed to legally withhold information from a parent regarding their child wanting to be called a different name or use a pronoun that didn't correspond to their sex, Ms. Secretary? So I have to tell you, as a mom, I find it just unbelievable that any school division would ever think that this was the right thing to do or any any governor's office. You know, as a mom, I want to be informed with everything that's happening in my children's lives. I want to work in partnership with my with my student, with my children, with my children's teachers uh, and with the school and have it be a partnership. And when you know, the piece you just read, when the message is not only do we not value parents' input, but we are purposely going to tell our teachers to not tell teachers things, especially around something as important as a child's identity and a child's development. Those are the conversations and the points in a child's life when a parent must be most engaged. If my child was hmm. dealing with a decision as big as changing, um, changing her identity, you bet I want to be informed. You bet I want to work in partnership with open communication with the school. And I want to be there for my child and know what's going on. And it's incredible hmm. that the policy was to keep parents in the dark. Uh, Secretary Gadara, um, some advocates say that these new policies, your new policies, are unenforceable and that the courts will strike them down because they appear to violate state and federal law. Employment and civil rights attorney Joshua Ehrlich uh, told The Washington Post this. Governor Youngkin is trying to pick a political fight by attacking trans students, but his model policies are in conflict with recent court rulings. Discrimination against transgender individuals is illegal discrimination on the basis of sex. Uh, your response, and where do you see this debate going, uh, both in your state and on the federal level? 
So I encourage all of your viewers and everyone to take a look and read the guidance and to read not just the model policy that came out of it, but all of the background and the materials. There are pages of legal um, documents and legal um, resources that we consulted to back up this policy. We worked with countless lawyers to make sure that everything in this policy is backed up by the law and backed up by research about the importance of having good communication and parent engagement in our schools and parent partnership with teachers. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we know that parents matter. The rights of parents to be engaged, to be informed, and to be part of the decision-making and the rights to make these decisions for their children and to help nurture and instill values in them, those are rights that are ensconced in both federal and in state law, and that we think we have a very strong case to be made for parents are the first and most important teachers of students. Um, and that, that mm. we are very clear that we think we're on the right side of the law of this, and we're on the right side and in touch with what common sense says and what every parent knows, which is that they know best for what's in, in the best interest of their children, and they want to be part of those decisions. They need to be informed partners. Yeah. Madam Secretary, according to uh, Equality Virginia, which is an LGBTQ advocacy group, they claim about 10 percent of Virginia school boards implemented those controversial Northam rules for how schools should educate transgender students. As the Secretary of Education in Virginia and a parent, how did parents receive this policy, those that were subject to uh, the Northam policy? Did you hear from those parents? We did. We actually received. So, first of all, you know, we will work closely to work with school divisions to help them understand this policy. We want to work in partnership. We want to listen. We want to work together to have people understand this. But the goal of this policy is to treat everyone with respect and with dignity. And every single child has a right to go to school in an environment, in a vibrant learning environment, which in which they are welcomed, they feel supported, and they're treated with respect and dignity. And that's at the heart of this. And what we heard from parents and that we received copies of trainings that were being done in some of our school divisions that literally said, you cannot tell parents about things when children are thinking about transgendering. That just basically gets at the heart of everything we know is right about building a community, building a school culture in which there is trust, in which there is um, a sense of belonging and a sense of partnership between school and home. And uh, we know from what we've heard from parents and what we've heard from teachers, too, who weren't comfortable with this policy and let us know that this was not the kind of environment that they wanted to teach in as well. So we are also hearing lots of wonderful things and reinforcing things. I know the media likes to pick up on all the controversies in the school divisions that are um, saying that they do not um, endorse this new policy. But we're also hearing from many, many school divisions that are thanking us for bringing clarity, uh, for helping them to have very clear guidance about how they can enforce this policy and ensure that they are creating an environment in which all students are welcome, in which we are embracing all students and treating them with dignity and with respect, and that we, again, are reinforcing the important partnership among students, parents, and teachers. The ACLU of Virginia has said that your new policies would worsen the already high rates of self-harm and suicide among these LGBT students. Uh, they tweeted the following, we are appalled by the Youngkin administration's overhaul of key protections of transgender students in public schools. Your thoughts? So I know as a mom and I know as a daughter of a psychiatric social worker who dealt with children all the time that the most important thing we can do for our children is to embrace them to know that they are loved and to know that there are the adults in their lives that are thinking about them all the time, loving them and working together to support them. 
The former policy mm -hmm. pitted people against each other rather than bringing people together as a team to support a child. I know, you know mental health and mental well-being is an unbelievable importance priority of this administration. We believe deeply that we need to do more to support all children and to create environments in our schools and out of schools where children feel supported, that they feel like they have access to help. And so this is part of something that we'll be working with a great deal, uh, both on our college campuses and our K-12 system, to make sure that we are prioritizing mental well-being and mental health. And we will do everything mm. possible for students who are dealing with all kinds of issues, whether it be an issue around their identities or anything else to support them. Um, but to say that by not having parents engaged in this process um, will be harmful, I completely disagree with that. And, what we, and we're very clear in the policy that this is about having parent voice to uh, and, and parents having an insight and to have also to offer guidance and, and approval for students to go into any kind of counseling or to working with teachers. And it's not saying we're not going to do those things. It is saying parents need to have a voice and a role in helping to make those decisions so that they can best support their child. Okay, your thoughts finally on the new policy. And in it, you affirm that teachers are guaranteed religious freedom under the First Amendment and cannot be forced to comply with policies that contradict their personal religious beliefs. Uh, the model policies state the following. Practices such as compelling others to use preferred pronouns is premised on the ideological belief that gender is a matter of personal choice and subjective experience, not sex. Many Virginians reject this belief. How important is it to you as Secretary of Education and to Governor Youngkin that religious freedoms be respected, not only for the teachers, but for the parents and the students in a public school setting? So it's vitally important that we respect people's, um, uh, their rights and their individual freedoms, especially religious freedom and freedom of speech. And so, you know, this policy is all about respecting people's rights, uh, the rights of, of parents, uh, the rights of parents to help make really hard decisions and to be part of that with their child, and also the rights of individuals who, for religious reasons, feel as though um, that they cannot um, ascribe to calling someone by a name that's different than, than their biological sex. And so we are trying to, again, um, create and support these rights, but and at the same time, and while at the same time, also hoping that people will do so with grace, with understanding, with respect and with dignity for every human being. And that is the goal on this, is how do we treat each other with love, with care, and with support? And I would hope that anyone, any teacher, and all the teachers that I know that are working in a school are going to work with that focus on grace, love, support for, for students, um, and to also build that vibrant learning environment in which every single person feels welcome and they feel like that they can be at peace with their own opinions and their own beliefs religious and otherwise, and at the same time, be welcoming of others. Secretary Amy Gadera, thank you so much for being here, and we will check in on you later. Thank you. Thank you so very much for the time. Thank you. New music commissioned for masses is a rarity these days, but in 2018, Frank LaRocca composed something called the Mass of the Americas. And on Friday, September 23rd, Capella Records will release the new CD. The Mass of the Americas, performed by the Benedict XVI Choir. And here to tell us about it is the man who originally commissioned the piece, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, 
and the aforementioned composer, Frank LaRocca. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Your Excellency, before we discuss the CD, I want to go back to the origins of this music. Uh, you commissioned this uh, for the Mass of the Americas. It premiered in December of 2018 at an ordinary form Mass in, in the San Francisco's cathedral. Uh, why did you want a Mass of the Americas, and why commission special music to accompany it? Yes, we. Uh, I founded the Benedict XVI Institute uh, for Sacred Music and Divine Worship to elevate our uh, our worship. So to uh, inspire more beautiful and reverent liturgies. Uh, Frank and I knew each other from years before when I was the Bishop of Oakland, and I saw the potential mm -hmm. of his compositional ability. So at the beginning of 2018, I was looking at the calendar for the year. In our archdiocese, we have an archdiocesan-wide celebration of Our Lady of Guadalupe this Saturday before the feast day. And I noticed in 2018 that that day would be December 8th. So a holy day of obligation in the United States because the Immaculate Conception is our patroness. So uh, people of all ethnicities would be attending mass that day, but at our cathedral and with, with the um, six to eight hour long procession beginning south of San Francisco mm. with the festivities of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So I thought it was a perfect opportunity to elevate Our Lady as the one who unifies all of us as God's children. We all love Our Lady. And I saw this as an opportunity, mm. especially with all the controversies we have with, with um, uh, the, the conflicts we're experiencing and the visions of society to unite us with different ethnicities, different languages, both sides of the border. So I envisioned this mass of a twin tribute to Our Lady of Guadalupe and Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. And so I asked uh, Frank to incorporate the, the sounds and the melodies of the popular songs the Mexican people sing correlated Guadalupe within the context of sacred music so to, to sort of blend this all together so we have a musical composition that expresses the unity we share in the Catholic faith and our love for our Blessed Mother. And Frank, you composed uh, and created a piece of music. It's really extraordinary. And at one point, uh, the Ave Maria is in the, uh, the language of the indigenous people of Mexico, the Nahuatl language. Uh, this is the first time that a piece of sacred music has been composed using that Aztec language. What, why did you choose to do that? And why was it important to you to utilize this uh, particularly ancient tongue of Mexico? Well, with the focus on Our Lady of Guadalupe, one naturally uh, thinks of the event of her apparitions to St. Juan Diego. And as I put myself uh, as concretely as I could into that reality, it dawned on me that they would have been communicating in his native tongue, uh, which was Nahuatl. And so as a way of making concrete the some of the elements of that encounter between Our Lady and St. Juan Diego, uh, I chose to use the language that would have been exchanged between them. Finding an authentic 
translation into that language uh, from the Latin uh, turned out to be, uh, well, in, entail a, a great deal of research. It led me all the way back to a book written by a mestizo priest, uh, Don Bartolome de Alva, whose charge was to bring in um, the native peoples in, into the Catholic Church. And so he wrote a small catechism for them, which included translations of the most important prayers into Nahuatl, and that's where I found this translation. The book was, hmm. goes all the way back to 1649. Amazing. Uh, Your Excellency, you commissioned this Mass, and, and after you did, it became sort of a traveling uh, Mass. You celebrated it all over the country, uh, in cities in the United States, Mexico, Canada. Uh, I, I remember at the Mass, uh, you know, at the, uh, of the Americas in 2019 at the Basilica in Washington. Uh, and it was celebrated in the form of a pontifical Mass, the traditional Latin Mass. Uh, what do you make of the changes Pope Francis has made regarding that Mass and his motu proprio guardians of the tradition, uh, restricting some of the use of that traditional Latin Mass? It seems to me Pope Francis's concern is on uh, with some people who have um, approaches with more of a divisive um, attitude. He must, you know, he has the vision of the world stage. We uh, have a vision more of what's happening in our own country. Uh, I know there are some uh, contentions around this. Uh, some people who are um, who object to the Novus Ordo Mass and uh, have um, an attitude that this is the only valid way or appropriate way to worship. I think it was trying to address that. Um, I know that attitude is there. Most of the people I know and the bishops I know that love that form of the Mass are not of that attitude. So. I think we have to, uh, as bishops in our local churches, we have to do what is best to provide for the pastoral care of our people. You always have to make sure we're preserving a sense of communion. My, uh, what, the way I mm -hmm. see this is the people who love the traditional mass, it's technically not what we call an ecclesial movement, as would be, you know, Curcio, Charismatic Renewal, now right. Neo-Catholic Way, but it has that characteristic that these movements if they're ignored by uh, the church's pastoral leaders, they tend to go off on their own and become create kind of a parallel church. But if they are engaged mm. with the leaders, give them proper direction and uh, kind of correct extremes, keep them within the fold of the church, they have the potential to renew the church. So I, I see the mm -hmm. traditional mass in that same way. We need to remain engaged and pastorally embrace our people who uh, love this form of the mass and make sure we're we're coming together with a sense of of unity in, in our worship in whichever form that worship is. Yeah, it 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 strikes me as curious. There seems to be this hypersensitivity among those who might attend the traditional Latin mass, uh, you know, looking down on the Novus Ordo, but there's no sensitivity in the reverse of people, you know, in the Novus Ordo looking down on the old right. It's a, it's a selective kind of uh, sensitivity, I think. And I don't, I, I, I with you, I, I don't quite understand it, uh, given the positive things we saw since Samorum Pontificum, which was Pope Benedict's uh, uh, challenge to the church to bring the old and the new rites together and allow them to exist side by side. Uh, I want to give audiences a taste of what they will hear on this new CD. This is from a piece entitled Cantico del, de Alba. Listen. 
Frank, it has been about four years since you composed the music for the Mass of the Americas. Uh, what has been the response, and why wait so long to release a CD? Well, the response has been uh, in incredibly positive, uh, more so than I could ever have anticipated. It seems, for some reason, uh, to have struck a nerve with many people, um, particularly, I think, those who believe in true enculturation in the mass and not simply the, the grafting of different cultural elements together with some hope that somehow they'll fuse into something uh, cohesive. Um, as far as waiting so long, uh, opportunities have to present themselves. Um, offers to record pieces, uh, major pieces like this, uh, don't just fall out of the sky. And we were fortunate that um, Blanton Allspaw, the producer, saw an op-ed written by poet James Matthew Wilson, who's a poet in residence at the Institute. He saw this op-ed hmm. in the Wall Street Journal, and it mentioned our conductor, Richard Sparks. He called Richard Sparks, asked him what he was up to, said, I would be very interested in recording this piece for you. So, um, and then the fundraising, of course, was necessary to take on uh, such a significant expense. Mm -hmm. Archbishop, you founded the uh, Benedict XVI Institute, as you mentioned earlier, for sacred music and divine worship in your diocese back in uh, 2014. Why did you think that was needed at the time? Was that a response to Samorum Pontificum, or what was it? It was a desire to see uh, our—it our, was really more of a practical vision to see uh, the way that Mass is celebrated in our parishes, to infuse it with greater, as I said before, with greater reverence, with greater beauty, uh, be more inspirational, more a sense of transcendence. Um, and we've, uh, we've kind of gotten on this track of doing, basically repeating what the Church did at the time, uh, well, right after the Protestant Reformation when Christianity was splintering apart, right? The Church went about evangelizing and re-evangelizing by focusing on the arts. Some of the most beautiful uh, music uh, composed in the history of the Church, Renaissance Polyphony, took place at this time when uh, Christianity was splitting apart, there were wars, there was strife, uh, but the Church knew that we needed to um, to form people properly in their faith and to engage in what I suppose we could call soul craft, right? And how the arts has mm. a way of healing and uniting and lifting the soul. So uh, great, these great compositions that then were spread throughout the great cathedrals of Europe. Uh, so we're kind of on this track now, as you mentioned before, this sort of Mary, Mary and Unity tour with the Mass of the Americas. It was celebrated in Tijuana. The second time was in Tijuana to conclude a national conference of liturgical music there uh, in the Basilica in Washington and other places so that we kind of elevate our sense of, of culture and awareness of beauty and create that desire so people in the parishes will be better formed with this and have a greater desire for what is truly reverent and beautiful. Frank, what is it about sacred music, particularly polyphony, that you think moves and inspires people across cultures and time? Polyphony mm. seems to flower 
directly out of the texts that it's setting, enhancing them for the purpose of prayer and magnifying the spiritual experience of this prayer in a way that uh, other arts simply aren't capable of because music changes through time in the same way that we, as we pray to God, um, have a, a perceived sense of back and forth, of dialogue, of exchange that occurs over the time of prayer. Archbishop, a new Pew study out last week projects that by 2070, Christians will likely make up less than half the U.S. population. What can the Catholic Church do to change that trajectory? Well, we speak about the new evangelization. I think, uh, again, the model of what the Church did um, after uh, the splintering of Christianity to elevate the arts. So we're engaging new, new compositions of sacred music. Uh, again, uh, what Frank mentioned about true enculturation, it's their compositions that reflect the times we're in, but in continuity with the tradition. So we need we need the arts and the music. Obviously, we need better catechesis. Uh, we need uh, better to uh, connect with people. So it's keeping all three transcendentals uh, open, the truth, beauty, and goodness. We have wonderful new catechetical resources. Uh, we need to employ those. Uh, the church is still the largest private provider of uh, services to the poor. Uh, we need to continue to do that, um, bearing witness to the charitable Christ. Uh, but we also need to elevate the transcendental of beauty. So I think operating with all three, truth, beauty, and goodness, getting especially into everything having to do with formation in our seminaries, our faith formation programs, in our parishes, our, our schools, our RCA programs, getting at all of the, the proper catechesis, and, and worship and all of these sectors will help form a Catholic soul in our people so that their people will no longer say that I was raised Catholic, right? How often do we hear that I was raised Catholic as yeah. if it's something they grow out of? If we connect our people right. with this beautiful heritage we have, it's people need to appreciate the heritage they have. It's kind of what a blessing it is to be Catholic. All the, the, the beauty the church has given to the world, all, all the knowledge, um, wisdom. It's its an incredible treasure chest that we have as Catholics. Mm -hmm. People need to appreciate that. And if they learn it when they're young, well, they'll be Catholic for the rest of their lives. Frank, what do you hope people find in the music on this CD? And how do you hope it's used going forward, the CD itself? Well, I hope the CD becomes uh, a tool to make people aware that music in continuity with the great tradition of Catholic sacred music is still being composed today. Um, you know, there's, there, there's an impression that um, Catholic music today is primarily folk songs, things that sound a bit dated, perhaps uh, borrowing mm -hmm. on styles from the 70s or 80s. Um, and anything that's bound to a particular era like that um, it can't be a, a permanent part of the church's sacred treasury because it comes and goes with the times. I'm trying to show that there is still a, a vital tradition of classical music, but classical music with a modern flavor. 
that can mm-hmm. tr- contri- continue to contribute to the church's uh, sacred treasury. As far as the use of the music, I have created an edition of Mass of the Americas that can be sung with just choir and organ, no uh, orchestra mm. or any other instruments required. And I'm hoping that this will bring this music um, into parish worship. It already has started to. Excellent. The Mass of the Americas, composed by Frank LaRocca and performed by the Benedict XVI Choir, is available September 23rd, wherever music is streamed or sold. Thank you both for being here. We are a little under a month away from the release of my new picture book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. Now, here's a special preview. The Wise Men are three of the most beloved characters of Christmas. But what if they were neither kings nor from the Far East? Now, in a thrilling new adventure for the whole family, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas... New York Times best-selling author Raymond Arroyo reveals the true hidden story of the mysterious Magi who spied a spectacular star in the sky and undertook a dangerous journey to follow the light, go to the king, and race into the middle of the greatest story ever told. Based on new historical evidence, the wise men who found Christmas captures the true wise men and reminds us that chasing truth is often the most exciting adventure of all. Sure to become part of your family's holiday tradition, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas is available for pre-order now at bookstores everywhere. The Wise Men Who Found Christmas hits bookstores October 11th. It's a spectacular read for the whole family, and I hope you'll come see me on tour. I'm going to be in Nashville, in the Villages, Mesa, Arizona, New Orleans, the Reagan Library, and many other places. Go to RaymondArroyo.com for all the details. You can also get pre-signed editions. You can pre-order them now from Premier Editions. That's also on my website. Follow the link. Of course, the book is available from the EWTN catalog and wherever books are sold as well. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.